This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcast. Now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. Tommy, what do we got today? Today we're looking at a very broad topic, the history of aviation, which a lot of people kind of think when they think aviation planes, you know, they think, oh, that starts in 1903 with the Wright brothers. But really, the history of aviation extends back for more than 2,000 years. It goes back to talk about kites, tower jumping, which we'll get into. So there's a ton of others. It's a relatively new technology that's not even 200 years old. Yeah, planes as we know them are like, what, 150 years old at most, really. Yeah, most. And yeah. the one, one thing that really got to me doing this research is I feel like... I don't know whether we Americanize everything. Uh, people tend to think that Henry Ford created the first car, and we kind of debunked that when we talked about American yeah. automobiles on one of our earlier podcasts. Him. But yeah. yep, same thing here. There was this myth that the Wright brothers are the ones that created the first airplane. And really, when you go deep into this topic, you realize that's definitely not true. Well, right? they made I the mean, first one that kind of worked for a short period of time. Yeah, for like 12 seconds. But they use right? other designs, it, the, yes. 12 seconds. Yeah. Well, later on, but yeah, but that, everyone thinks 1903. Well, I guess we'll get to it. But actually, the, the longer flight happened, what, 1906, 1905? Yeah, that was the third uh, third version of their plane. I was very surprised as to how much was done before then with relation to flying airplanes, really. But from then, from that point forward, really, which is also crazy because you're thinking like 1903, 1904, they're doing their thing. And within a decade, a plane as we know it really is being used with mounted machine guns in World War One. like how quickly it went once it oh, went, yeah. you know? Oh, super, it, yeah. It well, just, less than 100 it, years later, they're breaking the sound barrier, you know what I mean? Nuts. But so. I don't know if there's much else to do with planes now. I feel like this technology, as we'll get to in a second, it builds upon itself, kind of like, Phones. I mean, well, it's, yeah, you're gonna have a new iPhone, but like, where are you gonna go next? It's gonna be like a. Oh, well, it's supersonic, like, hypersonic. You know, I just you always make him go faster. Yeah. All right, so history of aviation as we know it. And the one thing you, you mentioned earlier, one of the earliest things that people did to try to replicate flight, because people have been obsessed with flight for as long as we have recorded history. Basically, this was in the time of antiquity. Men would basically strap bird-like feathers onto themselves, um, different different ways. You know, sometimes it would be it's almost like a glider, like a Hawkman backpack type of thing. Other times they would have it on their arms and they would basically jump off a tower and try to fly. A lot of the stories originated in ancient Asia. We have that written down, medieval Europe, things of that nature. A lot of the times it resulted in serious injury or death. So like it was not yeah. something that was um, probably smart to do, but there's well-documented ones. And some of them actually kind of worked, uh, but there's one that the most recent one that was documented was um, Albert uh, Berlinger, and that happened in 1811. He constructed something like that and jumped off out of a uh, tower, constructed an Omnihopter, yeah. which is kind of like, think of kind of like a helicopter, but like looks like a swirlies. You know, like when I was looking at this, I mean, again, this is some of this is like the Greek times as well. So it is what it is, right? But well, yeah. The idea that you took bird feathers and you strapped them into these wooden things that you then strapped to your back and, and you jumped off a tower, like talk about being a daredevil, right? There's no way that you're going to generate that much that much force, I guess, that much thrust to be able to fly. But again, they, they had no idea. They, these weren't really, they're not really looking at the scientific principles. Just like, oh, I'm high in the air. If I flap these wings really fast. I'm going to find some actually had limited success from what some of the things that they did. A lot of, of these ancient Muslim ones in the 17th century were able to fly some distance. Um, they wind up hurting themselves when they do fall. And they say, well, that's because I don't have a tail. If I had a tail, I would be okay. 
<laughs> but the thing is, they're, then they're making it bigger, they're making it heavier, you know, and then that now you're just yeah. going to fall faster. So that whole idea and the idea of like aeronomics, as far as like aerodynamic and stuff like that, they didn't really master that yet at this point, but uh, it was there. And yeah, a lot of people got hurt. And it's just looking yeah. back now, you're like, what are you doing? But Hey, you know, a hundred years from now, people would say, why were you building airplanes using, you know, fossil fuels or why are you Metal building airplanes like, fossils, you know, yeah, flying yeah. devices like that? Yeah. So who knows? Which brings us to really the first form of a man-made aircraft, which is actually a kite. Uh, you know, it's something as a child. Kite, yeah. You, you, we've all flown kites. And, and you were trying to get them flying were, on the beach it, last weekend. We were with our kids and it did not work out. <laughs> or, although your wife did not a great well. job. She, she took that kite and it totally worked. Uh, I, I couldn't do it. Right. So kites have been um, around. They're invented in China, possibly to say as far back as the 5th century BC. So we're talking like long centuries ago. And these are also very elaborate, these kites. Like they had designs that emulated different birds or, or beasts or also like mythical creatures. A lot of them were also fitted with certain strings and whistles and made some musical sounds while they flew. But that's a man-made, if you think about it by definition, a man-made yeah. aircraft. You're not attached to it, but it's man-made and it stays it's in the air and, and you're it getting flies. It, yeah, you're getting it into the air. Right? Exactly. You're getting that. You're catching the wind current and you're flying it. And then they kind of would build off of these ideas, right? Like, all right, if we build a big enough kite, can someone go on it, right? So these it, are some right? of the ideas yeah. that they're, that they're going to come together. So you, have, you did have man-carrying kites. They um, were used a lot of times in China for both uh, military purposes a lot of times. And they also used yeah. it as a form of punishment from what I saw. I saw like, I actually saw like, pictures of this. They tied you up to them and just floored you in the air. It must, must have been terrifying back then. Imagine, right? I mean, this is like a thousand years ago. They would connect these kites together. Uh, so it wasn't like a, it wasn't like your typical kite that they would attach a person to. They would have these kites that were bigger and they were kind of structured a little more, almost like, uh, I would say it's almost like a box that has an open top and bottom with like wings yeah, sticking out see, of it. Yeah. And they would, yeah, if you click like man carrying kites on the internet, you'll see it. And they would attach like three or four of these kites and it slowly put them up into the air, the first one, and there would be a string and attach another one and another one. And finally, when you had like five kites up there, there was a lot of pressure coming forward or going up and they would attach a, a criminal or something. And they would just like let you go in the air, which was, as you said, completely terrifying because you know, those kites are going to eventually kill you. God knows where they're taking you. So you get high enough that you're not surviving that drop. Yeah. Yeah. Oftentimes the ancient Chinese also used these kites to measure distances. Uh, they tested wind, um, they communicated and sent messages with them. So the kites were really used for, for the longest time. They say really to about 6th century AD, starting from 5th century BC. So yeah, no, I mean, men carrying kites were, were a thing. Kites were a thing. Next would be the hot air balloons, right? Hot air balloons, yeah. So this is obviously, yeah, that was probably, again, um, starts in ancient China, right? The ancient yeah. Chinese kind of, they understood how hot air rises and they applied these principles for smaller hot air balloons, like sky lanterns, if you ever watch any of those some of the yep. movies and stuff you see that right those sky lanterns and things of that nature where they release them but same thing with the kite let's make bigger ones and kind of see what happens right and that's some of the things that they will eventually use zing lang which is a um military general in china he's the one that first used them as military purpose really just to scare enemy troops like these giant ones coming across sometimes he'd put people in it sometimes he wouldn't but the idea is it's really just to like scare people it would set these like on fire balloons over enemy lines and, and the Europeans uh, this, don't really do a lot of these balloons, but putting people in it until later on. 
right? 1780s. Yep. That's the thing that's crazy too, right? Because we're talking right now, like what, 5th century AD and really yeah. nothing else happens much until 1700s, even though that you have Leonardo da Vinci in between that. Yeah. Well, Leonardo da Vinci, yeah. we don't actually know his work is not made public or published until 1797. So although he yeah. was trying to get flight, you know, a, a while before the hundreds yeah. of years before that, we didn't know it at the time per se. And they don't think he actually built any of them. Like it was more just like drawings. No. It's his drawings and stuff and his sketches. And then we talked about it later in an earlier podcast, his sketches for like this bat suit is what influenced Bob Kane to create Batman. So, but yeah, he did have some of these ideas and some of his um, laws of motion stuff, same thing like that, like ideas were proved to be true. Like when he created this, I forget what he called it. What did he call it? Like the roto, the roto fly or roto copper or whatever. It was almost yep, like yep. a whirling toy, like these like you know, roto craft when you like, you know, spin it with your hands, almost like a pencil. Yeah, it looks like, blades, a, heli- it looks like were, a helicopter from above. Yeah. Yeah. It, put, yeah, it looks like yes. a helicopter and it's the same modern principles helicopter. They don't know if it would fly or not. I think I remember watching like someone discovered like, oh, we're going to build these from like Da Vinci sketches and it kind of flew, but maybe you know, it was kind of like not really. It's just schematics. There's ideas on the right track, basically. Yes. They said that they were just not scientific enough. The, one of his major flaws in all his designs was the fact that he had the idea and he studied birds like crazy. Like he really wanted to create a machine that would yeah. take a man into the air. That was his, that was his goal, amongst many others, obviously. Yeah. The one thing he underestimated is the, the amount weight. of power that it would need to propel a flying object that's heavier than air. Right. And he really tried at first some of his first designs where, you know, he studied birds. So you try to create a flapping wings design where you literally had like almost like a bicycle. You would use some levers wings, and yeah. try to figure something out that would move wings up and down. But it's like a bat. It's flight, not going to make really. enough, not going to make enough thrust to be able to get in the sky. And that's the main thing. Yep. Humans can't flap. You know, our bones aren't hollow. We're not light enough. You can't flap hard enough. They, that's just not going to happen. And there was no other way to really come up with that. At that time, there's no way that there was no powered flight. They didn't. They weren't going to be able to come up with that. Not at least not like in a large scale. Yeah, and Isaac Newton didn't come up with his law of motion, third law of motion, until like a hundred years after Da Vinci's death, where you talk about how much resistance uh, the air puts on an object, and so on and so forth. So let's talk about this lighter than air balloons. If you had to look at a nation where this becomes big and originates, you have to say France, right? The French, yeah. So you had the, uh, we talked about the Wright brothers for American aviation. You have the M- Montgolfer brothers, right? They demonstrated yep. that a hot air balloon making it lighter than air would float. And they would basically put baskets on the bottom of it. And they were unmanned. Yep. People weren't going in these because, yeah, we can get them in the air, but how are we going to control it? How are we going to get these people? And how are we going to get it down? So, but it became a big deal. And you would see these a lot of times flying around parts of France, just these floating around because people were experimenting. It was like a very, it was more than a hobby. These are also like, I guess, scientists that were trying to figure out what's the best way to do this, right? Well, they, they first they yep. put, what, a sheep? A sheep and a yep. goat up there, and then they're able to actually. And it goes a couple miles and it lands. They're like, all right, now. And then two years later, they finally find a person willing to go up there. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it was the first flight with human passengers, and it's funny because yeah, and King Louis at the time, this is 18, 1783, actually decreed that uh, condemned criminals would be the first pilot to volunteer to go up there. And then all of a sudden, it's like these two guys that created it were like, well, actually. Like, maybe we shouldn't send criminals because, like, what if this works and they escape? So, 
let's just like send people that are volunteering for this. And that's, they wind up switching it to have volunteers go in it. But the looning overall became a major rage in Europe, right? In late popular. Yeah, this was like, a, like yep. the thing to do. Because you got to understand, being able to like float above the ground, something that like we might take a granted, like take for granted today because you can go on an airplane, whatever. But like yeah. back then, this was like brand new, be able to like, you know, look down and see things. And they're starting to understand about like how high you go up and the air thins, right? So they're finding a lot of things out about like um, atmosphere and pressures and stuff like that. It's also in the 1780s where they created the first hydrogen-filled balloon. They're learning so much, but it's all, all of this essentially deals with lighter than air flight because balloons are lighter than air. So these are not your typical, you know, aircraft yet, but at least well, they're we flying, are now yeah. flying. And big, big air gusts and stuff like that can take them. A lot of people that went up complained about um, pain in the ears and stuff like that because they weren't, you know, they didn't fully understand all those things. They were learning about it, you know, it's trial and error. You don't really want to trial an error where you're in the sky because an error can mean death. You can't steer them. They're not steerable. They're just no. kind of go. You just you go where it goes. They yeah. wind takes in places and then they go down. However, right away, this is late, you know, 1780s. So in a really by mid 19th century, during the American Civil War, they become an actual tool of war used to scout enemy lines. Go. Yeah, I guess you were going to say, right? The famous um, Ferdinand von zeppelin right we'll talk about the zeppelins yep. a little bit later with the airships he actually flew as a passenger for the first time in the with the union army of the potomac in 1863 so they were used during the american civil war yeah i yeah, know this is inspiration find a way to turn something into you know we can drop something from this we can hurt people with these things also after hydrogen balloons they decided that it would be cheaper to use coal gas to lift um the balloon but because of that um, the lifting power wasn't as strong as hydrogen, so the balloons themselves had to be larger, which is why you start having these humongous balloons. But coal was much more available than hydrogen, so it became much cheaper. People actually owned their own privately owned balloons. If you had money, you could own a balloon. But again, you can't really steer them. They kind of just go until you have uh, balloons that you can steer, and these are called airships. And eventually, the guy that perfects these, you just mentioned his name, Ferdinand Zeppelin. Zeppelin, Zeppelin yeah. right? They're lighted in air. So think of like the, the blimp, right? This is basically airships where your typical, what you consider today, you would know as a blimp. So you have the big uh, balloon up top yeah. and there was some form of a basket, really. Yeah. yeah. Eventually cabins at first basket, then cabins. And there was propellers attached to it and they would use a weight. They would have a weight on this track below it. And that weight would be moved to steer the balloon down or up. What would happen is the weight would shift to the back of the balloon, and then you would start putting the engines on. And because of the weight being on the back, it would tilt the balloon upwards by tilting its like butt down almost and steer it up. And then what would happen is it would do the same thing with the weight would shift to the front if you wanted to steer it down. These airships, initially, when they were created, it's, it's controlled, it's powered, is like 1850s. But it only flew about 15 miles and it had a steam engine as part of it. So literally had coal. And to me, that's kind of nuts, isn't it? But they did go fast, Pete. They had a top speed of six miles an hour, which <laughs> know, was like these people were like holding on. Like, oh, my God, like this, this thing is moving way too fast for me right now. The guy's name was Henry Gifford was the first person. This is, you know, half a century before Wright Brothers. He is the first person. He's a French dude, French engineer that manned the first ever powered and controllable airborne flight. So, yeah, it's not an airplane as we know it, but the first dude to power and control in flight a ship of some kind, right? This In this case, we're looking at basically this airship being a blimp, right? But still, 
he invents this steam injector. Eventually, when he perfects this in the late 1850s, this cigar-shaped airship was steered by three-bladed propeller that was powered by 250-pound, this is crazy, three-horsepower engine. And then on top of that, it had a 100-pound uh, boiler attached to it because it's steam. So you literally took the idea of a steamship, a powerboat, put, yeah, put, put a balloon put a on Zeppelin, it. Yeah. yeah, balloon on it, and it went. Zeppelin's the one that really perfected these as we know them. And he did this, um, his airship construction really began in late 1800s, early 1900s. So this was just a few years before uh, the Wright brothers. And as we get into it in a little bit. Yeah, maybe um, kind of Zeppelin's, I mean, and they're used quite a bit in, the, in the, both world wars, right? We talked about. Yeah. Um, and um, even after the Hindenburg goes down, which is another podcast, you can go back and listen to that. It's still they're still kind of used nowadays. They're really just used for like sporting events because they basically got overshadowed by heavier than air aircraft, yeah. which um, we'll talk about in a bit. But um, yes, yeah, so some of the first heavier than air things are just our gliders, right? I guess we want to talk about gliders a little bit. Yep. Before we move on from zeppelins, I feel like zeppelins were advertised as the greatest invention of Well, that flight. was going to be the thing. The idea was that they were going to be like these massive, you were going to see them over cities, right? You could just- Continent to continent. Continent across. Right. And they, they could do those things, but air currents and stuff, they were still open to that, right? Strong winds and stuff like that. Even though that can affect airplanes, they can definitely affect a Zeppelin even more. And they were slower. That's the thing. You weren't going to get, you can't get a, a Zeppelin going- uh, Supersonic. That's just not going to happen. No, you're, it was literally. You're right. It was going so, like six miles an hour. But the German air Zeppelin in 1910 was actually created the first ever air passenger service, commercial flight. Yeah. yeah. But all right. So let's get into heavier than air. You know, flying machines. You might say. And as you mentioned, the first one that's heavier than air, that's not a balloon, is a simple glider. It's these gliders. And what you're saying is a bunch of different gliders. I guess I'm, we're not going to go into all of them. One of them that I saw a lot was a name by the name of George um, Calais. And he worked yep. to discover um, a way that man could fly. So he designed many different versions of gliders and movements to actually control the body. And um, a lot of his gliders, if you look at the drawings, have that like arch in it. So they have that idea of he's understanding like air currents, right? He's understanding yep. that you need to have that, you need to get the airflow properly for it to actually be able to fly properly. And he spent over 50 years making improvements and improvements and improvements to his gliders. And he changed this, the shape of the wings, like I said, so the airflow over the wings would be correct. Uh, he designed um, tails for the gliders to help with stability, right? He even tried a um, biplane design to add string to his gliders. And he recognized that at some point there was going to need to be power. I'm never going to work. It's going to be gliding, but it's not flying. And he just could never come up with a way to power it because any technology at the time, this was in like the well, 1850s, we should say, this is, would make things too yeah, heavy. He's, Kelly started this idea in 1799. That's when he like gets into it and really... He's called the father of the airplane and by 1846. But when he starts in basically 1800, the technology is not there. I mean, by the time it's 1850, no. it's still not there. But this is the guy that figured out that a wing has to be designed in a certain way that it cuts through wind and the wind goes above it and there's uh, thrust, yeah. there's lift, there's drag, there's weight. This terminology, a terminology yeah, that's still used he, today. He creates that all. Yeah, he's, yeah. He creates that terminology, yep. Like what is thrust? What is lift? What is drag? Right, this idea of reaction of force that you know, like he basically applied Newton's third law, right, of gravity and physics, and he kind of looked at this idea of like, all right, what makes mass accelerate versus what doesn't? Physics. He applies physics ultimately to because create that's what flight is. Flight is yep. physics, right? It's, you have to understand these things because there's no other way you can get something as heavy as an airplane, you know, like a Boeing yep. seven eighty seven into the sky. 
So that, I mean, yeah. we'll get to that. But uh, the idea, yeah, and he's come up with these early on ideas, and it just kind of grows from there with these glides. And you still have people running off of cliffs or jumping out yeah. of towers with, with a glider. So a lot of people yeah. are still dying because they're saying, well, that's the only way for me to do this. But other people are like, no, that's not. So they, they come up with like kind of uh, like riding a bike, like riding bikes, and then he just goes into like a ravine or something like that, and they're flying different ways. And another one who does this in 1891 is someone by the name of Otto Linenthal. He was yep. a German engineer, okay. and he also studied these aerodynamics and worked to design a glider that would basically fly. And he was the first person to design a glider that could fly a person for long distances. So he could yep. actually glide for quite some time in this, like for a couple of minutes, he could actually glide for a while. And some of the books he wrote, and he published these books in 1889, and they were actually used by the Wright brothers in their designs. He did more than 2,500 flights until, unfortunately, and that, there's a famous picture of him flying, uh, glide. if you ever look up his gliders, you're going to see these pictures. But, oh yeah, you've probably seen them on like, you know, commercials and stuff that they show his gliders because of they were successful. But he eventually dies because a sudden gust of wind comes when he's doing one of these gliders and just he loses control. Because you're still, even with a glider, you're still, you don't have total control. You're still kind of at the mercy of wind gusts and stuff like that. He designs the hang glider you guys know as a hang glider. It's the triangle. Underneath is a metal triangle that the person sits in like this little basket and is holding yeah. onto the metal triangle. You often see it in movies when someone's like running off a cliff and then just glides in. That's basically Jumping, what he yeah. created. What that design, um, yeah, the, the famous picture of his is him with like his legs dangling out. Again, these things kind of overlap. So yeah. he becomes the glider king in like yeah. 1880s, 1890s, while the ballooning is given away to zeppelins and airships. So there, it's not like it's going from airships to balloon, you know, ballooning airships and then gliders. No, gliders are happening at the same time that yeah. you have these airships. Yeah, they're happening at the same time. They're going to see which one works better. You know, that's basically what, yep. what this competing camp, some say airships, others say gliders, powered flight. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. It leads us to a man by the name of Samuel P. Langley, who was actually an astronomer who kind of realized that you need some sort of power to fly. And he does build a model, the um, Aerodome. And you can find pictures of this online. It looks like a little model plane, basically. It has a small steam powered engine and it actually flies. Um, the problem is. He built like a small model, almost like a toy version. I was going to say, it was little. It was little. And he was paid $50,000 to build a full-size one. But the full-size one, it wouldn't work. It was just too heavy. And it just kept on crashing. He keeps on trying to do this. But he eventually just um, gives up trying to fly. He still does a lot of um, – with aerospace, he still – he winds up becoming director of the Smithsonian Institute, Samuel P. Langley. What I think is interesting when you look into him, right? And he's doing this really in like late 1800s, right? So literally like probably two, three years before the Wright brothers do their own thing. And his flight, 
the flight works. It all works until you put a man on it. That's when it stopped working. So he was looking for a, a, a stronger, more powerful engine. That's ultimately what it came down to. Because yeah. once you put the weight of a man, he made it bigger, his model, and put a weight of a man into it. Ultimately, like it just became too heavy. So now he's looking for the newer engine. And, and again, that engine doesn't really come to play until you have a combustible engine put in there, which is what the Wright brothers wind up doing. And literally, like a year or two after he tests his... Also, another thing that's interesting here is his plane didn't have wheels. So it would usually what they did is they would set it off on like off of ships. Did you notice that? It was like yeah, a track that would go for ships and then it would land on water so they could just like fish it out and start again. A lot of times they would um, just go too until they ran out of gas. That's when it would that's when it would well, because there's no human on it. There's no one yeah. actually piloting the damn thing. So just let just it go. fly until it runs out of gas and then it falls. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're like, all right, let's go get it on our boat, right? And see like where we could take it. But then we get into the Wright brothers because they created the first, like, I guess, successful flyer. And based on looking at what already exists, you mentioned this a few times, the Wright brothers took the formulas really of, of multiple other people and inventors because we did not mention a bunch. There's really a lot yes. here that created little things here and there, you know, uh, little things with gliders, little things with steam engines being put on planes. Uh, there was the Maxim flying machine, Hiram Maxim, right? American engineer uh, built his own wing tunnel and created two twin propellers and realized that twin propellers would power uh, a steam engine better, created a 180 horsepower steam engine that he put on planes that actually went a little bit. They would go 200 yards and then they would fall. So all that the Wright brothers do is apply all those things and put them together, but really through the sheer fact that they are bicycle makers. And when you think of a bike, it's all about proper balance. So they think of a plane like a bicycle. It's about finding the proper balance. So you have the Wright brothers, Orville Wright, Wilbur Wright. They are credited with inventing and building the world's first, and this is the key, successful motor-operated airplane. They're not the first airplane. It's the first successful, successful. motor-operated one. And actually and, takes flight, right? Exactly. Takes flight. And the key here, too, is it was controllable. Controlled, yeah. Um, and landed. So that takes place yeah. on December 17th, 1903, at a place. It's south of Kitty Hawk. I remember I say Kitty yeah. Hawk. It's south of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Actually, a place called um, Kill Devil Hills in North Carolina. Yeah. And Orville Wright is the one who does it. It flies for 120 feet in about um, 12 seconds. And that they do, they do. I think, four flights that day. The longest one was the last one, 852 feet in 59 seconds, right? And he had people there witnessing it. So you had businessmen there, people from the village. So, you know, it was well-documented by the press and it becomes, you know, man can fly. And this is, the whole point is that now they prove that it can happen. Now it's all about improving on that. The thing that changes everything is the internal combustion engine and that's created uh, it kind of changes a lot of it, this gas-powered combustion engine, because it's more efficient and it's also lighter. So that's, you know, these guys have two propellers on their plane. So now you're not talking about steamships and you're not talking about boilers. It's about incorporating that into it. The first two flights don't, don't really go that well. Yeah, they so go back to Dayton, Ohio, and eventually they create the Wright Flyer 3, which basically has um, a different a type of rudder on it. They disconnected some of the other ones. And the first time they tried it, they were able to fly for over 10 minutes. Then 20 minutes yep. and 30 minutes. And the longest one, um, Wilbur actually flew 24 miles in 39 minutes and 23 seconds, which is like a big deal. Yep. No, it worked. It finally, like yeah. they created a, they created a way that, to that was fly, land, just, and importantly, they could maneuver it and take it where they wanted it to go. Look how quickly that is utilized to what we know as airplanes. Well, it's quick because people see this and they're like, oh, once, I'm mean, like you said, there's a lot of people trying to do it. So once they see what the Wright brothers did, they kind of saw how 
close they were, you know, tinkering a little bit. Now they could get their stuff to fly. And so a lot of development of these practical airplanes and airships because people just, it became very like popular for private use, for sport use, and also for military use. The military gets very interested in, you know, you always talk about war is not a good thing, but war does advance technology. There's no doubt about that in history. Just look. And the airplane's a great example of that. Look where the airplanes were in 1903, then what, 10 years later? For a few more, like 12, 13 years later in World War One, and look where they are at the end of World War II. Yeah. Look where they are now. <laughs> you don't even, you don't even need course. pilots for them anymore. Do you want to, I feel like we should touch upon the idea that there is, however, one thing, well, there's a few, but there's one particular event and person that is often uh, mentioned as negating the fact that the Wright brothers accomplished this first. And that is a German uh, person that immigrated to the United States um, and changed his name to Whitehead. It was eventually, initially Gustav something, and he changed it to Whitehead. And from 1897 to 1915, he designed and built early flying machines and engines utilizing the new engine model, right, the combustion engine. And what he winds up doing it is on August 14th, 1901, two and a half years before the Wright brothers, claims to have carried out a controlled powered flight using a combustion engine in his number 21 monoplane. And he did this in Fairfield, Connecticut. And this is reported actually in 1901 by the Bridgeport Sunday Herald by a local newspaper because there's about, there's, you know, there's a decent amount of people that are watching this happen. Yeah, yeah. An authoritative source for contemporary aviation, who winds up publishing an editorial that accepts Whitehead's flight as the first man-powered controlled flight of a heavier-than-air aircraft. Um, however, the Smithsonian Institution, which is, ironically, they are the ones that have the original Wright Flyer. I just yeah. saw it a couple of months ago. They continue to maintain that Whitehead did not actually do it, that it was not. it's still the Wright brothers, even though this guy might have done the exact same thing for a few seconds himself in Connecticut two years before that. Well, the idea is also it's um, Wright Brothers had more press there, I guess, right? Yeah. More there. Yeah. So could this guy have done it? Sure. I'm sure it could be some other people that could have done it somewhere, just didn't have people watching it. But they they were the ones that definitely got the press for it. They were the ones that then improved on it, made it longer, right? And other people were able to jump on from there. Then in 1909, right, you have the first airplane that crossed English Channel, right? So these things yep. are just increasing. 1927, 1927, what, barely 20 years later. You have Charles Lindbergh flying nonstop across the um, Atlantic, transatlantic yep. flight. Well, Wilbur Wright actually traveled to Europe in 1908, and he started giving a series of flight demonstrations uh, in France specifically, because France was kind of known as like the capital of flight. From that point forward, you, people just got better. The engineers specifically in Europe got better and better and better, and they started creating uh, flaps on wings to gain more lateral stability on planes. Uh, they realized that the best design was to have the rotor be in the front and not in the back of the plane, and so on and so forth. Slowly, or I should say slowly, very quickly, really created what we know as as, a, as, as an airplane. During this time, there was also a dude named Paul Cornu. Did you see that? He created the first helicopter in 1907. Yeah, that's it big, that has vertical takeoff. That has vertical takeoff. Yeah. So that, that becomes a big deal. Yeah, that took him up a height of 13 meters, right? He was there for 20 seconds and fell down, but still it was like a big deal. Italy is actually the first one to take an operated, you know, man-operated airplane and yeah. use it in war. And they do this in the Italian-Turkish War in 1911-1912. And really, it's used just for reconnaissance. Um, it was not for bombing. That's really what they were used of. And for the most part, it's what you see in World War One too, right? You have the dogfights and stuff, and it's a couple of attempts at bigger bombers and stuff later on, right? But for the most part, that's what airplanes are seen as used for, right? Reconnaissance, be able to see where enemy troops are. It's not until 
really World War II that they're used in huge numbers. I'm sure we'll do a yeah. podcast on that sometime. Yeah. And you know what's interesting too here is when we think of these planes in World War One, they're still mostly wood and canvas. They're oh, that's what they are. They're wood canvas, they they biplanes, like propeller driven. Yeah. You have to like start up by like spinning it and stuff like that. These are not the planes of World War Two with propellers and then obviously the jets you have in Korea and, and now. Yeah, the most popular plane used in World War One was the Newport Four, which is a French built sporting training and reconnaissance monoplane. Uh, it was built around 1910s, and it's it looks like a modern plane in a sense. But when you look at pictures of it, it's it's literally wood. It's like a match, bit a lot of matches. You know, it's like wood and canvas material that just yeah. you know with an engine strapped to the front that somehow takes a person up. There's no even the person that sits in it. There's no window in front of the person. Like no, you're, you're just, just the air's hitting you. you. Wear, you're just you were in goggles and so like, you still have planes like that out there now. They like at air shows and stuff. Remember we went to an air show not too long, yeah. well, a couple of years ago. Yeah. You see them there. And I'm like, why would anyone want to get in this and fly? Nice. Like it's basically just like a little bit of metal around you covered with like, like you said, like canvas and wood. Nuts. So the World War One. this is when we get into dogfights because the one side gets up there in the plane, the other side gets up there in the plane, and all of a sudden the pilots started bringing pistols and shooting at each other in the air, and yeah. then they started bringing Throwing rocks guns, at each then, other, yeah. Yeah, then they figured out, like, okay, we could mount a machine gun on this and figure out for the propeller to, to basically, like, stop at a certain moment when the machine gun's fired. So then that's instituted in World yeah, War One. Yeah, synchronized, synchronizing, yes. The, the actual shooting of the machine guns. And then after World War I ends, these aviators are like modern-day knights. I mean, they're considered super famous. You know, if you were an aviator in World War One, you were, like, like the Red Baron, for example, right? You became a celebrity. And, like, Red Baron wound up shooting down 80 planes in air-to-air combat, right? So it became the idea of what's an ace, Ace basically getting credit for five victories. Five times you shot somebody, you became an ace. These guys between wars, they start joining circus. Uh, Mail delivery gets into, all right, well, let's use a plane. Why not? They call them barnstormers, right? Flying in small towns across country, showing off their flying abilities. And you could take passengers for rides. There's no war. So, like, it's like a cool thing, but no one really knows what to do with it. Because even during this time between the wars, Airplanes are still not really used for commercial flight. Like, that hasn't been tapped into yet. Not really until World War II and after. The airplane design is getting better and better, and now you have metal sheets that are being put on it. It's no longer a canvas. So that's the transition. You know, between 1898 and 1939, there's that big transition of making the airplanes heavier. And the reason why you can make them heavier is because the engines are becoming more powerful. They could handle bringing that machine up. And then you get into World War II, and, and World War II obviously increase pace of development yeah. of production. Yeah, they're making bigger ones. They can carry more bombs, go higher, right? They're dealing with all that stuff. But really what you, what you see towards the end of World War II is the development of jet airplane, right? Jet aircraft. And that's really what going to go into more of what we have um, today. But the jet turbine and everything like that, you're able to actually go even faster. So that's why by 1947, Charles Yeager pilots the Bell X-1, right? And it's the first aircraft mm-hmm. to exceed the speed of sound, which is a totally different thing. You are going faster than sound, even breaking the sound barrier for the first time, which is what, like yeah, 700, 700, 700, yeah, 700 miles per hour. Uh, there was the X-1 supersonic rocket jet. Isn't that crazy? Over the Mojave Desert, 1947. But the first commercial jetliner right is 1949 that's when you have your like early air travel Passenger, uh, yeah. for passengers because but, of world war ii though yeah well actually a lot of these engines were left over world war ii engines yeah, i engines, mean uh, yeah. engines uh planes they were like planes, let's yeah. repaint them 
go ahead. But imagine like it's freezing in there. It's cold and it's freezing. Oh, they were, yeah, they, they weren't super – I mean I guess they were pressurized but not to like the full extent. Yeah. I mean, the pilots yeah. used to wear like electric suits to keep them heated when yep. they were on bombing missions in World War II and now – Let's put people in these things. Civilians it didn't work out quite as well. Well, Boeing is the one that actually makes it glamorous, right? Between 1954 and 1957, uh, you have the debut of a sleek 707, um, and that's that comfort, speed, and safety. Boeing actually ushered in the, uh, the modern age of American jet travel. This is where Pan American Airways became really popular and famous. Back then, these jet planes, you know, you had daily flights from New York to Paris, and it was like a modern world in a sense that you felt wealthy if you had the ability to get on a oh, yeah. plane like it was almost a status like oh, i don't have to drive i could take the plane i mean that's what they said that frank sinatra's song uh was actually come fly with me was inspired in mid 50s with this boom in commercial travel all right so like looking at flight i mean we kind of we kind of brought this to where we are today today's airplanes are supersonic we know all that the jet engine that kind of comes and a jet engine is actually created by the germans in world war ii a lot of people may not know that and the germans had they had the ability to create their jet fighters a little quicker perhaps would have been able to turn the tide of war but they came too late and too little um however at the end of world war ii we stall or kidnapped really us and the soviets a lot of these engineers from germany to help us yeah, build rocket, yeah, yeah, yeah. Build rockets ours, and, yeah yeah. yeah, and our jet engines. And the first time, really, the jet airplanes went into usage it was in the military um, in the a Korean War. You know, so you have that transition to jet powered Saber, Sabres versus MiGs, yeah. And then from that point forward, technology hasn't really changed much. We still just have more powerful jet well, it's engines. Just, yeah, more not... powerful, yeah. yeah. It's, well, eventually, we're going to have, what, uh, the warp engines, right? That's according to yeah. Star Trek, your jam. Yeah, indeed. Right, so indeed. You, so, so you'll have that at some point. But um, you have digital flight, right? So the computers now kind of like take control of the plane and are all constantly, basically what the Wright brothers are like, keeping it balanced. Because now a lot of these yeah. planes are not like, especially the military planes, they're not, they shouldn't be able to fly, right? Based on their design, but yep. because this constant modifications are constantly being readjusted through the computers, even like micro inches and you know and stuff like that, that's keeping them flying. And that's the modern era now. I think I saw somewhere that one of the facts is that some of these modern day jet engines could inflate like an entire like football field size balloon in like 30 seconds. A few things that I kind of, I guess, fun facts that I could, you know, we could finish up with was in 1911 and 1912, Harriet Quimby, she was a journalist, right? Harriet Quimby became the first American woman ever awarded a pilot's license in 1911. And she got this license after only like four months of flight lessons. She did really awesome. She was very known and achieved like this, like, oh, my woman is flying thing. This is again, 1911 and 1912. And she was the first woman to fly solo across the English Channel. And this was supposed to be like a big deal. And the media was getting ready for it. However, it was overshadowed because two days later, um, the sinking of the Titanic happened. And no one really remembers Harriet Quimby. which I think becomes bigger of, news. Yeah. And then Amelia Earhart kind of steals a lot of that celebrity. Well, she gets a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, which we should do on. a podcast on. But another one, first commercial passenger flight actually was 1914. Still wooden, still canvas. Um, and it was New Year's Day, and the pilot's name was Tony Janis. He transported a single passenger from St. Petersburg, Florida, across Tampa Bay in his airboat. Um, so it was a plane that took off from the water. And it was a 23-mile flight, and it cost five. He charged the guy $5, and that basically became the foundation for commercial airline industry. It's like, oh, wait, you could, like, take people for rides if you wanted to. So I thought that was kind of a fun one. 
What else? The first nonstop transatlantic flight was in 1919. Two British aviators of the Great War, John Alcock and Arthur Brown, uh, nonstop transatlantic flight and 16 hours undertaken eight years before Charles Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic alone. Uh, they started in St. John's, Newfoundland, where they barely cleared the trees and then crash landed in a peat bog in, in County Galway, Ireland. And they both survived. But like, I mean, there's pictures of the first flight and they crashed. But what makes the difference with Charles Lindbergh eight years later is he is the one person because these guys would switch on and off um, who flew. That was the difference. His lucky Lindy makes their first solo transatlantic flight by himself with a couple sandwiches sitting on a wicker basket um, in his airplane called the Spirit of St. Louis. And then, as you mentioned also, Amelia er um, Earhart repeats Lindbergh's feat in 1932 by herself, so five years later, and she is the first woman to do so, to fly solo across the Atlantic. Eventually becomes super famous pilot, and in 1937, while she was attempting to circumnavigate the globe, she disappears over the Central Pacific Ocean and is never heard or seen again. Bum, bum, Crazy. Bum. I'm always fascinated by flight because you think about it, 1903 to 2003, 100 years of how you went from that paper stuff. And by the 60s, where we had um, people landing on a moon. Like that, that doesn't happen. That's why I, one thing I always wanted to say I saw an interesting fact was that Neil Armstrong actually brought a piece of the Wright Brothers plane with them to the moon when they landed. That's so cool. that was like a little, little piece of the fabric. Because, you know, without, without that, you don't have, you know, one leads to the other. Again, maybe one day you have rocket packs, a Kryptonian well, under yellow sun can fly. Yeah, but like real rocket packs that like you can buy at like Walmart, you know? Oh, yeah, well, that, that, that's probably not going to happen in our life. Because then you have to regulate that, right? I mean, even right well, now, they're yeah. thinking of regulating drone flight. That's why flying cars didn't become the big thing, right? Imagine flying cars. You have a fender bender oh, in I space. Can't. and well, not in space, oh, but at 10,000 feet. Yeah, in well, there. Bye. <laughs> so <laughs> That's nuts. Anyway, guys, I think that uh, pretty much sums up our little short foray into the brief history of flight. As with all our other topics, there is a lot of stuff out there about these topics. We are here to just provide you guys with a little bit of a taste and um, kind of maybe spark your imaginations. and Spark your interest, yeah. Go do your own research. Stuff. Absolutely. Yep. So thank you so much. And uh, if you guys need to find us, you can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. We are there to answer any of your questions. Uh, do not forget to click that like or subscribe button wherever you listen to this podcast. We do appreciate that. And thank you so much. And we'll see you guys next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast. And if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.